0: Hello and welcome to the Play Notes Podcast, where we give you the inside scoop on the main stage productions at Portland Stage. I'm Maura O'Sullivan.
1: And I'm Nick Hohn.
0: And in addition to being apprentices at Portland Stage, we are also your hosts for this season.
1: And today we are going to be digging deeper into Sherlock Holmes' The Final Adventure by Stephen Dietz, based on the 1899 play by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and William Gillette. Today's topics will explore the wild fandom of Holmes and its connection to fandoms today. We're also going to give you some background on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and William Gillette. We'll talk about the way Sherlock Holmes solves his crimes, as well as our shared cultural obsession with the genre of true crime. So you want to get into it, Maura?
0: Yeah, get your magnifying glass ready. Something that we found interesting while we were researching Sherlock Holmes for Play Notes was how his mind works and how Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has taken this character and given him such a specific way of solving mysteries, of seeing the world.
1: Mm -hmm. The language is very much codified in our culture, the like deductive reasoning or whatever the actual term of it is. I'm not actually positive.
0: Well, I'm glad you bring it up because that is one of the biggest misconceptions about... Oh, really? Yes, we love to say that he deduces everything, that he's a deductive reasoning kind of guy. But if there's any scientists out there listening, actually uses inductive reasoning. Now, I didn't remember what this meant Mm -hmm. from, you know, biology class at some point in my life. But the difference is fairly simple. Deductive reasoning is where you form a theory or a hypothesis, and then you use observation to confirm whether it's right or wrong. Inductive reasoning begins with observations and looks for patterns among them, and then forms a hypothesis or a theory from that information, which would induce those patterns.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. So Because Sherlock isn't coming into these investigations already with the hypothesis, like the maid did it or something. He figures that out from the details. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. So it's really just the flip of it. It's the opposite. Okay. So yeah. So looking for the patterns among all these teeny tiny little details that he's known for looking at and Mm -hmm. seeing that we never see.
1: Observing.
0: Yeah. So that's really how he operates. He also is rooted in science. He uses the scientific method, Mm -hmm. which is something that anyone can do and Yet he does it better than you could ever expect yeah he doesn't have a superpower he doesn't have crazy resources that others don't have he just looks around
1: just looks around he's just a guy Something that actually surprised me in the show is his breadth of knowledge. Like, I think Irene says that he spends a lot of his time talking about the variants of tobacco. And it made me wonder how often that is like is useful for, for someone like Sherlock Holmes to have knowledge in so many different tiny little aspects of life.
0: Yeah, I think that he's a big nerd and mm-hmm. he likes to <laughs> he likes to read about all these different things that you don't necessarily know how they're going to come into play or mm-hmm. if they're going to come into play in your life but every now and then that obscure knowledge mm-hmm. will come into play conan doyle actually studied medicine okay before he became a writer and so that opened his eyes to a whole new arena of yeah. information and knowledge and technology. So we see Sherlock using medicine knowledge. We see him using botany and chemistry. Mm-hmm. He also loves opera and literature and like cultural things and all of these bizarre little Pockets of knowledge help him to be the the master of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of solving that he is.
1: He's able to tell that the King of Bohemia is about to walk into a room because of a specific Bavarian cologne that he's wearing. Like, that's so specific and odd. But it helps him solve a mystery.
0: I also was really surprised to find out that not only did Holmes use all of these sort of forensic science developments in his criminal investigations, but people really looked to him as someone who was on the forefront of actual crime solving.
1: Like in the real world,
0: crime solving? In the real world, so, before the 1890s, it was not uncommon for people to just waltz all over crime scenes, <laughs> you know, to clean it up right away. Mm-hmm. They didn't think to pick up tiny fibers and blood and look for footprints and all those things that we now are like, of course. Yeah. Now we have CSI. Yeah. But they didn't think like that. And so Sherlock was someone who made it popular to actually look at the clues.
1: (laughs) That's so crazy that before a fictional character, he was the one that popularized the use of the magnifying glass, wasn't he?
0: Yes. Yeah. He's the first fictional character to use a magnifying glass
1: truly insane that no one was even looking before this.
0: Well, and now we think detective, we think magnifying glass. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's synonymous. Yeah, he was at the forefront, actually. As a writer, Conan Doyle was using fingerprints in his stories <laughs> before Scotland Yard was using that technique. He wrote about fingerprinting in 1890, and then Scotland Yard did not use it till 1901. Like, that's a substantial amount.
1: That's ridiculous.
0: Sherlock also uses this knowledge of typewriters mm-hmm. in one of his stories, which I think is so interesting. He realizes that every machine has like unique qualities mm-hmm. that you can trace back to it. Oh. So he solves this whole mystery using mysterious letters mm-hmm. and looking at what machine it could have come from to find the culprit. Gotcha. They did not know that was a thing. So that was in 1891. And in the U.S., the FBI didn't have a documents department to do that kind of analysis until 1932.
1: What a heyday it must have been to be a, a paper-based criminal before, in the years between 1891 and 1932. <laughs> you know it's popular, but no one's looking yet.
0: Well, it reminds me of like now we talk about cybercrime. hmm And before we didn't understand IP addresses, and now it's so easy to trace computers Mm -hmm. in a way that we didn't realize was even an option.
1: Yeah. Just to clarify, Scotland Yard is the headquarters of the London police, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Just for any of our listeners that might not know that.
0: We love a fun fact. Yay, fun fact! (laughs) Speaking of Scotland Yard, one of the other techniques that a study in Scarlet, which was one of the first ones to use fingerprints, another technique in that story is using blood testing, which now is so obvious to us. Yeah. But the method that Sherlock describes using, where he's testing the hemoglobin in the blood stains, mm-hmm. it predates the first blood testing techniques. They wow. didn't come out till 1900, 1903. And yet what he described is actually accurate and, you know, a decade before that.
1: Yeah, like 13 years before that. Cause a study in Scarlet came out in 1887, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I oh mean, my God. it's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. And, and this all goes back to Conan Doyle being someone who read all of the scientific journals mm-hmm. and was interested and fascinated by all of the developments in such a rapidly developing Victorian era. Yeah, I will say <laughs> I have to say that as much as Sherlock was brilliant, mm-hmm. he was a flawed character. Yes. And there is certain aspects to how he's written and how he thinks that are not exactly right.
1: The the science of the time showing its age, maybe?
0: <laughs> yes. Famously, Sherlock denounces the Copernican theory. He does not believe that the earth revolves around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? No, he really didn't. Actually, in a study in Scarlet, that first story, he says to Watson, you say that we go around the sun. If we went around the moon, it would not make a penny worth of difference to me or my work. <laughs> so to him, it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care for the idea and he does not think it impacts his life at all.
1: Man, Conan Doyle should have written a story where the murderer used sundials in his, <laughs> in his murder of some kind.
0: I will say, like, years and years later, like, late into the nineteen, early 1900s, mm-hmm. he does sort of use astrology. Astronomy? Astronomy.
1: <laughs> A Libra did this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I will say (laughs) that in some of his later, later works in the Mm -hmm. 1900s, he does use astronomy to solve some of the mysteries. And so it is sort of a clue that, you know, maybe Conan Doyle changed his mind and maybe he decided Sherlock was going to grow a little. Mm
1: -hmm. That's Um, big of him.
0: (laughs) It's rare you write a character for that long that you can have an entire change of heart.
1: Yeah, I mean that's why that's why Sherlock Holmes is such like a multi-dimensional character that still holds relevance today. He was one of the progenitors of using scientific method in criminal investigation to actually find who committed the crime, as opposed to who is convenient to charge with the crime.
0: Yeah, it's very cool to see the shift from just going on motive and mm-hmm. alibi to actually going to the solid facts,
1: the evidence. So we talked about a little bit how when you think of Sherlock Holmes, a couple of things come to mind with the magnifying glass, the deerstalker cap, the overcoat with the short, the half cape and the curved pipe. It's it's a costume that you can conjure up immediately and it says Sherlock Holmes. It's like he's wearing a name tag Anytime you see someone dressed like that. But I know that you know <laughs> that <laughs> was not written into the Arthur Conan Doyle stories but it came from somewhere else. Do you want to tell our listeners about that?
0: Yes. Okay. So this is one of my favorite lesser known things about the world of Sherlock. Mm-hmm. His entire costume and imagery and so many of the specific things that we associate with him are from the mind of William Gillette, who was the first person to ever portray Holmes on stage. He was an actor and a playwright. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And he wrote the first adaptation of Sherlock on stage with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay. And that particular play is what Stephen Dietz's Final Adventure is based on.
1: The playwright of the current show that we're running here at Portland Stage.
0: Yes. So that I'm 1899 sure. version that Doyle and Gillette did together is the first time that we actually saw Sherlock in person.
1: Can you tell me more about Gillette, the, the, the man, the myth himself who brought Sherlock to
0: life? William Gillette was actually born in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, so, your neighbor. <laughs> yes, I grew up knowing this name. He grew up next to Mark Twain. Wow. Which is just so wild to me. And he was an actor on Broadway in the West End, and he was actually recommended to Arthur Conan Doyle by uh, a friend of his who said, oh, you're having trouble writing the play version of it. I know the perfect guy to help you write it and to be Sherlock. And they had a great meeting. They said, let's do this thing. And they opened it in Buffalo, New York, actually. I love that. And the critics didn't love it, Mm -hmm. but the audiences did.
1: Oh, I'm sure.
0: It was a huge hit. They moved it to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It played a million places for a million years. And uh, Gillette actually played Holmes 1,300 times over the course of 33 years. Oh,
1: my God.
0: In many different versions, adaptations. He was the go-to guy.
1: That's so fun. I I can imagine that someone anywhere wants to put on Sherlock Holmes. You got to give a call to Willie. Willie Gillette.
0: Willie Gillette knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. He is also the the mastermind behind the whole costume. Really? Yes. That's never actually in the books. And uh, he made the deerstalker hat happen. (laughs) Also in the books, Mm -hmm. the pipe that is used is a straight pipe.
1: Not the curved one.
0: Yes, we're so used to the curved. Mm -hmm. He thought it would be an easier prop to handle on stage.
1: Oh, wow. And
0: he liked sort of the physicality that it gave the character to have this curved pipe. Mm -hmm. And that has been connected to the character ever since.
1: Yeah, wow. That's so much fun.
0: Uh, One of my favorite things that he brought to it is he is responsible for one of the most famous lines from Sherlock. We love to quote, oh, this is elementary, my dear Watson. That was him? That was him. Oh my God. (laughs) He wrote in the original script, this is elementary, my dear fellow. And then that was taken into the first movie version. Okay. And that script made it elementary, my dear Watson, which is what we love to quote.
1: The famous line. Yeah.
0: And Conan Doyle loved everything that he brought to it so much that when he brought back Holmes and started writing news stories in Mm -hmm. 1901, he used him as the imagery for all of the illustrations.
1: (laughs) He became the official face of Holmes.
0: Yes, he was the spokesperson. What's also cool is I I grew up in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite places to go hiking was Gillette's Castle, which is the house of William Gillette that he built in Haddam, Connecticut. Did you say castle? Oh, I sure did. He made so much money playing Sherlock that he took his Sherlockian fortune, built a 24-room stone castle on 184 acres of land overlooking Long Island Sound. Oh, my God. And he actually designed the interior of this castle to have all of these secret compartments and secret passageways and places to spy on his guests, all because he was so obsessed with the Sherlock clever, sneaky... The mystery of... Yes. Wow. He had uh, very cool celebrity friends that would come and stay at the castle, mm-hmm. such as Calvin Coolidge and Albert Einstein. And now you can actually go. I've been with my family. You can go and get a tour of the house and hike around the grounds. It's beautiful and such a weird, cool thing to do Yeah. after you've had this incredible success.
1: (laughs) I would do the same thing, truthfully. Build a big castle with a bunch of puzzles in it. That sounds great. It's the dream. (laughs) It's the dream.
0: He's the American dream.
1: (laughs) (laughs) People have a lot of thoughts about the American dream, the real American dream. Build a castle full of puzzles.
0: I mean, if you asked five-year-old me, that's what they would have said. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get enough of Sherlock? Portland Stage offers special discussion events for every show. The Artistic Perspective is hosted by artistic director Anita Stewart and is an opportunity for audience members to delve deeper into the themes and creative questions behind each production through conversation with special guests. For Sherlock Holmes, The Artistic Perspective is on Sunday, October 30th at 4 o'clock and features guest speakers Dick Cass and John Clark from the main crime writers to discuss Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's enduring legacy and what makes a good mystery.
1: We also have our Curtain Call talkback series, which is a chance for audience members to talk about the production with the performers, exploring topics that range from the rehearsal process to character development to issues raised by the work. Curtain Call for Sherlock Holmes will be on Sunday, November 6th at 4 p.m. Hope to see you there.
0: So I don't know about you. But I am someone who gets very attached to fictional characters very easily.
1: Like in their fandom?
0: Yes, I am a part of many a fandom. and Which ones? I will do anything for The Office. Okay. I am a Shonda Rhimes fanatic. Anything (laughs) she touches is gold. And that concept nowadays is so normal. Yeah. Are you in any fandom?
1: I mean, this is a, an old venerated fandom, but Star Trek, big Game of Thrones guy. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: fantasy, sci-fi, mm-hmm. all of that.
1: A lot of passion from their their fans these days.
0: It does, mm-hmm. and I am constantly on Instagram following these people and on Twitter, mm-hmm. seeing what people thought about the newest episodes. Yeah. Back in the day though, when Sherlock came out, mm-hmm. that concept was new.
1: But it was there. Yes. Wow.
0: Sherlock was such a runaway hit that Conan Doyle was shocked himself. He actually was focused on writing like historical novels and (laughs) really serious books. Yeah. And he wrote these short stories about Sherlock just to make a quick buck. Mm -hmm. They were published in The Strand Magazine. Yeah. And then people loved it so much that they just kept demanding more and more he was constantly churning out these stories and the subscriptions for the magazine that they were in were through the roof. People okay. would wait in lines around the block outside <laughs> of where they would sell the magazines. And Conan Doyle at a certain point was so burnt out on the character that he was like, I'm over it. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to go on to write his other passion projects. <laughs> So he decided in 1893 that he would write the final problem in which mm. Sherlock falls off a lethal cliff. Yeah. And
1: that was such a gentle way of saying that that he was killed in the story.
0: You know, I'm still mourning the loss. <laughs> <laughs> it still hurts. I
1: noticed your black armband.
0: <laughs> yeah, they well, the fans really did mourn it.
1: That's so insane.
0: They were so upset. They were wearing black armbands in the mm-hmm. streets. They were writing insane letters to Conan Doyle, to the magazine. <laughs> they were outraged. They were like, how could you do this? And this went on for years of like harassment through letters. God. They did not have Twitter to do a hashtag about it.
1: But people are the exact same. The same <laughs> Haven't thing. changed a bit.
0: Yes. I mean, twenty thousand people unsubscribed for the magazine when oh Sherlock God. was not there. And this insane reaction was so never-ending mm-hmm. that years, years later, he actually decided to bring Sherlock back. Back <laughs> from the dead.
1: I can't he he rewrote his own canon just to stop the threats and harassment.
0: Yeah, he felt like so overwhelmed with this outrage and he felt so bad for these fans that couldn't move on. Mm-hmm. That in 1901 he wrote Hound of the Baskervilles, which okay. was a prequel. Oh, really? And then people were so thrilled mm-hmm. that he was back that he was like, "Okay, all right, more. Let's resurrect him." Oh, uh,
1: well, might as well.
0: <laughs> I think it's such a cool testament to how good the writing really was. Mm-hmm but also once a public gets a hold of something that becomes that much of a water cooler talk in Victorian London times, a lot of them, a lot of the people who read his stories were only recently literate. A lot of them did not have a lot of money to spend on cultural resources. Mm -hmm. So these were easily obtained. They're in this magazine. They were in the Penny Dreadfuls.
1: Because his stories were relatively cheap to to the consumer, right?
0: And they were serialized. It was Mm -hmm. like watching an episode of... TV every week
1: mm-hmm.
0: it was part one of the story in each edition of the magazine
1: yeah and i it makes sense because like we saw such an explosion of fandom culture when streaming became so popular because the access was widened to i mean if you didn't have cable then you probably had a streaming service and everyone could get it just like the explosion of literacy that happened and the explosion of people with a bit more disposable income during the industrial revolution being able to spend it on a magazine and i think that that's seeing such like cyclical movements in culture when it comes to media is just that's that's really cool
0: yeah and i think it's so interesting to see like at that point there was such a demand for content mm-hmm. there was this this hunger for more and more stories mm-hmm. and you could only write so fast yeah But now with streaming, we can consume crime stories like it's candy.
1: Yeah. That's so funny that you say that because crime fiction really is one of the most popular media types that we see right now in our own day and age. Back then in, in 1891, I know that The Strand would increase their circulation by approximately 100,000 copies every time an issue was put out with a new Sherlock story. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, to think about it, he Conan Doyle published 204 short stories, 22 novels, and 10 books. Like in a wide variety of things. He wrote scientific articles. He wrote historical adventures. He wrote paranormal fiction. But Sherlock was by far the crown jewel in his literary portfolio because one reason or another people loved crime fiction we saw this with other writers at that time names like edgar Allan poe wilkie collins that were doing something similar edgar Allan poe was in the united states doing almost a, the exact same thing writing short stories and publishing them in a literary magazine They were popularized in general by something called a penny dreadful, which was a penny for a magazine or a short story. And they were generally stories of crime that were incredibly gruesome graphic. And they were a hit with the newly formed middle class because people in England could spare a penny. And then they would get this hit of crime fiction that was serialized. They would come back exactly like Sherlock would.
0: Yeah, it's, it feels like the same way that Law & Order mm-hmm. has been a hit for years and years, has all these spinoffs. They're such easily consumable standalone episodes. Mm-hmm. They're on basic television, yeah. very widely accessible. Mm-hmm. Hits the same, same craving.
1: And that was kind of a new thing for the post-industrial revolution population in England at the time because there was a growth in population, there was a growth in crime, and... There was also the implementation of an organized police force, as opposed to sort of military units that were just deployed in cities. So people wanted to know and to create order out of this chaos, stories about crime, and then specifically with Sherlock, stories about crime being solved.
0: Yes, that was a new concept to, mm-hmm. to investigate in that manner.
1: Yeah. Because as we as humans navigate our unpredictable lives, stories like these offer the ability to process and learn within a recognizable structure that feels safe and satisfying.
0: Yeah, being able to experience something dangerous without Mm -hmm. actually being in that situation yourself Mm -hmm. is something that we still love, we still crave.
1: In our current age, we're being constantly bombarded by details of crime in the news cycle, and the more violent, the more airtime it gets, to an unfortunate degree sometimes. And this has formed a new kind of genre for us, true crime, where it is exploring real-life murders or kidnappings with creators that are trying to assign narratives to the cases based on facts and theories, things that come to mind, Truman Capote's novel. In Cold Blood in 1966, but someone that might be listening to this podcast might be way more familiar with the idea of a true crime podcast.
0: I devoured Serial season one Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. anyone that I talked to had an opinion on whether or not he was guilty or Mm -hmm. who they thought killed her and And it was such a real case that was Mm -hmm. still in real time
1: being decided
0: to be looking at a man's fate while he is currently in prison appealing was really, really wild. And there's My Favorite Murder. Yeah, yeah. There's so many podcasts and docu-series that are looking at things that are either cold cases haven't been solved, offering Mm -hmm. their own hypotheses, Mm -hmm. or there's so many murder reenactment shows on Mm -hmm. Discovery Channel, but they're all fairly recent.
1: Yeah, and they're generally paired with at least four podcasts, charismatic hosts like ourselves, Oh, stop. Uh, <laughs> that gives someone a way in while still feeling safe and secure. Some psychologists have likened true crime to a roller coaster or a horror movie where you can experience danger. You can experience coming close to death. I mean, on a roller coaster, you're going hundreds of miles an hour upside down, but yeah. you trust in science to keep you safe. Uh, that you understand that your uh, restraints are going to keep you in the car. In a horror film, you're in your living room or you're in a movie theater. You know that the murderer isn't going to actually come and get you or you're not going to be eaten by a monster. It gives us an opportunity to experience things like fear, disgust, horror, shock. Things that if you're going through your day... I hope you aren't experiencing.
0: No, but but we love the adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. I think it breaks up this monotony of our everyday routine yeah. to all of a sudden be faced with the physiological reaction of mm-hmm. fear or terror or...
1: Yeah, so it's an understandable obsession. But at the same time, when you look at the category of true crime, you have to think about what those two words mean, true and crime. So these things have actually happened to real people, and real people have gotten hurt. And so there's been a lot of debate about this genre's ethics over the lifespan of its popularity.
0: Which is totally valid. Oh, absolutely. Because in a lot of these cases that are being, you know reopened Mm -hmm. and examined on Netflix or examined again on someone's podcast, Mm -hmm. their family is still out there. They're still grieving. They're still living in this limbo of not necessarily knowing what happened to their loved one or not getting the justice that they deserve. And it is interesting that we've made it such a popcornable topic. And yet... It has real consequences. Yeah.
1: Which Sherlock didn't. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But in a in an argument that some proponents of true crime make that you could cite Sherlock as People are saying that it builds street smarts and helps people to avoid the the fate of subjects in those same cases by pointing out murderers and sort of techniques that people use. What comes to mind is the the old show to catch a predator where, oh, yes. where they would catch predators online and it wasn't admissible in court because it's entrapment. But that's not the point. The point is to point out to viewers what people online that are predators do. And Sherlock, in that sense, like we were talking about earlier, inspired some actual law enforcement to think, maybe we can actually use fingerprints when we look at crime scenes. And fingerprinting is one of the staples of modern CSI.
0: Yeah, and I will say that ethically ambiguous as they are, some of these documentaries or podcasts that have looked at some of these cold cases that have been closed for Mm -hmm. years... Have actually reopened the cases. They've led to the police being like, maybe we should check that out again. Or Mm -hmm. sometimes nowadays we have different technology than they had when the crime occurred. Mm -hmm. And people have figured something out that could change everything. It is, it runs the spectrum of, you know, how do we be sensitive to the the truth of it Mm -hmm. and the horror of it? But also now there's these new resources and could exonerate certain people or find find yeah. criminals that we never could have found before.
1: Yeah. And that's that's definitely true. I mean, if, if my memory serves, the first season of Serial, in fact, helped exonerate the, the subject.
0: Yes, he actually just got released.
1: Yeah. So like a net positive. But at the same time, true crime has a tendency to follow the tragic fates of oftentimes white wealthy women. And these cases will involve kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder. In actuality, white cisgender women are statistically the least likely to experience these very extreme violent crimes. However, these true crime narratives center them, oftentimes, as the sympathetic victims and ignore the violence that befalls women of color, trans women, disabled women, and women from other marginalized communities that are more often than not the subject of these crimes on a day-to-day basis. But when you find a true crime podcast, oftentimes it is the fact that the victim is a white wealthy woman that is giving it visibility.
0: And I do think that a lot of the people who are avid consumers of Mm -hmm. this content are white cisgender women. They actually recently did a sketch on SNL about how much women love to watch true crime and will do it like right before bed mm-hmm. or as a way to wind down with a glass of wine. <laughs> and it sort of was poking fun at this genre being so accepted mm-hmm. by that kind of a community. And probably because they can see themselves in it yeah. in a very weird, weird way. Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the more unfortunate parts that comes from true crime is that they emphasize victims' actions and behaviors sometimes in the name of constructing a narrative that someone might be interested in listening to or watching, consuming in some way. This often can cultivate a victim-blaming tone throughout the coverage of a crime that perpetuates the societal assumption that women are at fault for the violence they experience and in turn potentially restraining their behavior.
0: What's also interesting is what we've been Seeing now Mm -hmm. is true crime media that is then turned into crime fiction.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: We have narrative films written about real cases. Gabby Petito last Mm -hmm. year. This was a huge case. Mm -hmm. They were searching for her murderer in real time. People were following it on the news. And they've already announced that they're doing a Lifetime movie based on her and her experience in the last days of her life. Yeah. So we haven't even given the time to the family to properly mourn her. And yet now we are going to add in inserted fiction.
1: About their child and seeing an actress live out the last days of their actual real life child's life.
0: Right. And these are people who didn't know her, are writing the story about her, adding character development in ways that Might be artistic liberties.
1: Yeah. In the name of quote unquote narrative development. Something that is important to note about Gabby Petito's case, in particular in its connection to true crime, it came with such a fevered pitch of enthusiasm from the true crime fan base that amateur and professional true crime creators, who oftentimes fancy themselves investigators, were following the events of the case so closely that they, in fact, started to impede police investigation. Which, I mean, you can imagine, if 15 amateur podcasters were here trying to break into our booth, to do it themselves, it might be a little bit more difficult for us to do our jobs.
0: Yeah. And the enthusiasm and the passion for solving the, the mystery of it is great, but it comes with a consequence.
1: It comes with a high cost, especially for the victims and the victims' families.
0: Absolutely. And so it's really interesting to see that we went from just loving crime fiction to taking it to the next level of loving true crime. Mm -hmm. And now we are going the next step of taking true crime and making it fiction again. And Mm -hmm. that cycle, I don't know that Arthur Conan Doyle saw that coming.
1: No, because Arthur Conan Doyle's basis for the entire character of Sherlock Holmes was that the facts are what is important. And so Sherlock Holmes never sensationalized himself or his works. I think a couple of times in the novels, he even pokes fun at Watson, who is the narrator, for writing these these things down. Yes. Because to him, it's a job based in reality, based in facts, and he's doing it to solve a crime as opposed to taking something, an assumption, and turning it into a narrative.
0: It's a delicate balance and it, it can be dangerous. It can
1: definitely be dangerous.
0: But I don't see it stopping anytime soon.
1: Oh, certainly not. <laughs> But it definitely lends credence to Sherlock's fandom as a whole that true crime and crime fiction is so popular, even to this day.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of Play Notes. As always, you can find a print version of the articles you've heard here on our website, portlandstage.org slash play notes.
1: Tickets for Sherlock Holmes' The Final Adventure are on sale now, so contact our box office by calling 207-774-0465 or buy them directly on our website.
0: The show runs from October 26th through November 20th and will also be available to stream online from November 9th to December 4th.
1: What a great option.
0: There's no way you have to miss it. There's
1: no way that you can miss this. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. really helps us out. Thanks for hanging out with us and join us next time for our production of A Tuna Christmas. See you then. See you then.
0: This edition's articles were written by Audrey Erickson, Nick Hone, Maura O'Sullivan, Rachel Rapella, and Talia Wolf. And the episode was produced by Maura O'Sullivan and Nick Hone.